Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Micah chapter 5. We're going to be in Micah chapter 5, verse 1. So let, let, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible mercy and grace that you have lavished upon us. How great the Father's love for us that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. Lord, thank you for the provision that you have made in making us your children by sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins, to redeem us and to reconcile us so that we could be adopted into your family as heirs to your kingdom. And Lord, as we get to your word as we see the promises that you have made of sending in a rising king and a restoring king and a conquering king, Lord, help us to understand these promises and help us to see how these promises are, will be fulfilled in Christ. And Lord, as we are in a season of remembering and rejoicing and watching and waiting, Lord, help us with an eagerness to watch and wait for you to come back and to make all things new. Help us to see that all of our hope in a world filled with chaos is in you and to trust you and to long for you, Lord. Help us to look to you and to walk in obedience to you as your people. So come, Lord, and speak to us and reveal truth to us through your spirit. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we are, it's hard to believe, like we're in week three of celebrating Advent. And so Advent is a season where we're remembering and rejoicing the first coming of Jesus. But we're also in a season of watching and waiting for a second coming and glory. And so we're going to be in Micah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 15. And so through this Advent season, we've studied, uh, we've gone through the book of Micah. And so Micah begins his book really with harsh prophecy about impending judgment of God on the people of God. And so the very first three chapters of the book of Micah, Micah, we saw that God was preparing to judge His people because they've rejected His covenant, they've rejected and rebelled against His commands, and they've rejected His word. And despite all the warnings from Micah, the people continued in their rebellion because they had all these false prophets said, you're fine, God's going to forgive your sins, you are God's people, you are descendants of Abraham. And they continued listening to these hope-filled messages of the prophets. And Micah said, no, God is leaving his throne, and when he comes, he is going to judge you. And then we get to chapter 4, and it almost seems like the whole book turns around. And so Micah begins through, uh, to, to encourage the people of God with four promises to give them hope as they live in a world full of chaos, where he says the Lord is going to come, and he's going to govern you by his law that will be written in your hearts. The Lord is going to come, and he's going to govern you as he's going to reign over you as a king. The Lord is going to come and He's going to govern you by training you up in righteousness. And He's going to come and govern you by His power. And He is going to destroy 
all of your enemies. And now as we get to chapter 5, that theme of a conquering king, of a rising king that's going to reign and rescue and restore and make all things new is continually being unpacked in chapter 5. So let's look at our our text in in, uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 1. It says this, Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself and grieve. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One who will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord and the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. So let's just stop here and unpack this. If you remember in Micah chapter 4, verse 7, look at Micah chapter 4, verse 7. It says, I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. And here's the part I want you to pay attention to. It says, then the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. So in other words, in chapter 4, God made a promise through the prophet Micah that he himself will be their king. And he is going to reign over them forever and ever. And now as we get to chapter 5, Micah reveals additional truths about this rising king. So if you're taking notes, here's the first additional truth that, that Micah reveals to us about this rising king. This rising king will come from an unlikely place, a.k.a. everybody knows the place? Bethlehem. It's on, it's on the, the board. And look at verse 2 just so you can see I'm not making it up. It says here, verse 2, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are several criterias of the future king of Israel that will also be the Messiah. One of the criterias that we've already seen throughout the, the, the Old Testament is he will be a descendant of King David. God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, that a descendant will sit on his throne forever and ever. So in other words, there's two ways where David will always have a descendant sitting on his throne. Either there will be one heir after another, after another, after another, or another way is there will be an heir that will live forever and ever. We kind of know the answer. Who's the heir? Jesus, Jesus who lives forever. And David was from Bethlehem. And Micah reveals now this future heir, this promised eternal king would also be born in Bethlehem. And so Micah describes Bethlehem as small among the clans of Judah. In other words, it's an insignificant community. When all the big cities were were named and listed in Judah, Bethlehem did not make the list. Yet what we see is out of this insignificant place that no one really knows about, no one really goes and visits, 
come the most significant person ever to be born on the earth, the Messiah. So this rising king will come from an unlikely place. The second truth that Micah reveals to us is this, is that the rising king's origin is from eternity. Look at the second part of verse 2 here, and I find it very interesting. It says, look at the the last sentence in verse 2, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And so even though the rising king will be a descendant of King David, Micah reveals that this king that is coming has no, is no ordinary king because of his origin. Where is his origin? From antiquity, from, well, what does it say in the end of verse 2? From ancient times. Well, in some of your translations, it says from eternity. Now, let's just be honest. No human being's past comes from antiquity. No human being's past comes from eternity. The only one that has lived forever, the only one whose origin is from antiquity, from eternity, is God Himself. And so, in verse 2, He's implying not only will He come from God, but this very person will be God because He who has lived forever will continue to live forever. So Micah reveals this rising king comes from an unlikely place. This rising king, his origin is from eternity. And the third, the third thing, if you're taking notes about the rising king, he will stand and shepherd God's people. He will stand and shepherd God's people. Look at verse 4. It says, he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord and the majestic name of the Lord his God. And as a result, they'll live securely from his great, they'll live securely, and for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. I find it really fascinating that it says this king is going to stand and shepherd God's people. In other words, it's like almost two imageries, an imagery of a king and an imagery of a shepherd. And let's just be honest, these two imageries do not go together because what does a king do? A king rules, a king reigns, and what does a shepherd do? A shepherd guides and leads and protects and feeds. And it's very fascinating when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The sheep know my voice and I know my sheep and I lay down my life for the sheep. This rising king will stand and shepherd God's people. And the last one is this in verse 5. The rising king will be their peace. He will be their peace. And it's, again, very fascinating. Where after Jesus washed his disciples' feet and he instituted the Lord's Supper and they broke bread and took the cup, Jesus says to them in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. So not only is Jesus, who is this rising king, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but this good shepherd is also the very peace of God. Because of what he has done, he has accomplished peace so that we can have peace with God. Now, we need to kind of stop here because I think there's a truth that we need to understand Um, that, we don't, that, that, that the Old Testament prophets kind of struggled with. And even though we know the answer, we need to know how these two fit together. Um, 
when the Old Testament prophets talked about the future and they talked about the rising king and they talked about the Messiah coming, in their mind, the Messiah was only going to come once and he is going to establish his kingdom and deliver his people and he's going to rule and reign forever and ever. Well, we know the answer that the Messiah came but he's also going to come a second time. And so one of the questions we need to ask and try to answer is, how did the prophets miss it? Like, how is the prophets writing as if the Messiah is only coming once? And we know from the New Testament and from Jesus' own words, not only is he coming once, but he is coming again. And we see really there's two distinct advents of when he's coming. The first one is we see the Messiah coming as the Savior of the world. That's the first advent. And the second distinct advent is the Messiah coming, but not as the Savior of the world, but rather as the conquering king of this world. And so how did these Old Testament prophets miss it? How were they unaware of this truth? And I think we can find our answers in the Bible. Um, if you want to go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 to 7. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 to 7. And according to Paul, and what he is going to say is that this coming of the Messiah as Savior and the return of the Messiah as King was hidden from the prophets. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 to 7, he says this, By reading this, in other words, his writing, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to the people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So in other words, the, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, in a sense to the prophets, was a mystery. They understood enough to tell people that a Christ was coming, but they did not understand fully of what that would look like and what that would mean for their people. In their minds, the coming of Christ was a king coming who's going to save them and is going to restore the kingdom of Israel and they'll live happily ever after. And what Paul is saying, there was a mystery of Christ that God purposefully have hidden from the prophets. And after Jesus' first coming and after the, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, this mystery was now revealed to the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament that have the Spirit. Another part of this mystery for the Jews and for the prophets, like the Messiah was the Messiah for the nation of Israel. Yeah, the world was kind of mentioned, but in a sense, it was a mystery. And Paul says, look at the second part of what he is saying. He, he says in, in verse, verses 7, The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. And so, in other words, that part of this mystery is that this Messiah did not just come for the nation of Israel, but it came for the world. And the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, will be co-heirs to the promise. So, in other words, all the promise that was given to them are also given to the nation, is given to the Gentiles as well, because every promise, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, every promise is as yes 
in Christ Jesus. And so a mystery that was hidden from the prophets in the Old Testament is now a mystery that God has revealed through Christ, through the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. And as a result, when the prophets saw glimpses of the coming Messiah, they might have anticipated that he would come and he would establish his kingdom at his first appearance because God hid it from them. They did not fully see it. And I think here's an illustration that kind of makes it helpful. It's not an illustration that I've made up, but rather an illustration that is commonly used to describe how the prophets have missed it. Um, When you think about it, when God revealed to the prophets about future events that's going to occur, they're looking far out into the distance, and what do they see? They see the future, but it's almost kind of like looking at a, a mountain range with many peaks. When you stand far away from the mountains, it looks like these peaks are right next to each other. And the second you stand on one of the peaks, what do you notice with all the other mountain peaks? There is a vast valley that separates the peaks. And so the closer you get to it, you're seeing there is a great distance that separates these two peaks. And this is what happens to the prophets of the Old Testament. The Lord revealed to them the future. They saw the future from the distance, and they saw these mountain peaks from a distance, these truths about the Messiah, and they saw them standing next to each other thinking these events are one and the same thing. And Paul says, as this mystery of Christ has been revealed with his first coming and now the anticipation of his second coming, now we are noticing that these peaks weren't next to each other, but rather there was a great distance that has separated them. And one of Micah's contemporaries, Isaiah, he he gives us these imageries of the Messiah coming. And we're going to notice the prophet Isaiah gives us two kinds of imageries. The first imagery is that of a suffering servant, and the second imagery is that of a conquering king. And if you think about these two imageries, these two imageries seem contradicting. Because how can one person be both a suffering servant and a conquering king? Because kings don't suffer and don't serve. Kings rule and reign. And suffering servants are servants who suffer. They are not kings. And yet both imageries are given in Isaiah, and you're like, how in the world can that be one person? Unless it's one person coming in two different times to fulfill two different purposes. And we see everybody knows the the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 6. Notice what Isaiah says, and, and we see this fulfilled in Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. We did not value him, yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we in turn regard him straight and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. 
punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished them for the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 12, he says, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Isaiah gives us a picture of the Messiah as a suffering servant, one who comes to live a life these rebels could not live so that he could die in their place and take all of their iniquities, all of their sin upon, them, upon himself and pay for it once and for all. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He came and he lived a life we could not live and he died a death we were all supposed to die. And he was buried, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. And his resurrection was evidence that that, that the penalty that Jesus paid was satisfactory, that God's wrath was satisfied. And Jesus, as the suffering servant, was lifted up, was glorified, ascended into heaven, is sitting at the right hand of God, which is a place of prominence. And he now is our great high priest interceding on our behalf. And now we know there's this time gap. We're waiting for Jesus to come, but he's not going to come as a suffering servant. He's going to come as a conquering king. And then uh, Isaiah gives us this picture of the conquering king in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. It says this, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish that. So when you compare these two imageries of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and and Isaiah chapter 9, this, this coming king, it does seem to be contradicting. And yet we know it's two, it's one person and two coming. And I think even in Isaiah chapter 9, we really see these two peaks in one verse. Let me show you. Here's the first peak, okay? Look at verse 6, the first peak of, his, of the first coming, Jesus' incarnation, born in Bethlehem. Look at verse 6. It says, a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. That describes Jesus' first coming. The incarnation, him taking on flesh, born. But we also know that he will not be any ordinary child. Because who will this child be? Look at, look, look at, the, the, uh, continue. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This son will not be an ordinary son, but rather this son will be the son of God. And his coming to earth, initiates the ministry of the suffering servant. But then, in the very same passage, we see the second peak. 
Look, look, look at this. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7. It says, He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What is Isaiah talking about? No longer a suffering servant, but a conquering king. One who will take the rightful place and will sit on his throne and will rule with justice and righteousness forever and ever. When we get to Micah chapter 5, we see two peaks again. We see in verse 2, the first peak, the Messiah coming, born in Bethlehem. And then verse 4, we see the second peak. He will reunite and you, he will reunite and unite and reign over his people forever as the conquering king. And what separates these two comings is a gap, a period of time. And I think in Micah, we see verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, look at this, this gap that is occurring. It says, therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who's in labor has given birth. And the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. So in other words, when you, when you look at chapter 5, you're like, yes, this reigning king will be born. Oh, no, look at the bad things that are going to happen. And then verse 4, you're like, yes, the reigning king is going to rule and reign. And in verse 3, it almost looks like this time of abandonment, this time of regathering. We're like, well, what time does he refer about? We don't really know. It could be possibly be uh, exile, because remember, there was before the exile, before they went into Babylon, Assyria, or it could be the time of after the exile, the 400 years of silence. And the whole regathering could be at Pentecost. Remember at Pentecost after Jesus, after Jesus ascended, when the Spirit filled the disciples, what happened? Many Jews came to the faith. Or it could be the period of Paul talks about in Romans 11, the regathering of the nation of Israel. But either way, the promise that God has made through the prophet Micah is that this rising king is coming. He'll be born in Bethlehem. His origin will be from eternity, and he will stand and shepherd God's people. And we know that that is both fulfilled in Christ's first coming and will be fully fulfilled at his second coming. And now we're going to see how this rising king is going to restore all things. Let's skip over to Micah chapter 5, verse 10. Micah chapter uh, 5, verse 10, it says this, In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands and, will, and you will not have any more fortune towers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities, and I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations you have not obeyed. When we look at these five verses, notice a phrase that is continually repeated throughout these five verses. I will remove. I will 
pull up. I will take vengeance. So, so what's going on here? In a sense, the work of the rising king, the work of King Jesus coming back and to restore all things and to make all things new, for him to do that, what does it require? It requires for him to remove all of the bad things. It requires for him to, to take all the bad things that have caused God's people to stumble, and caused God's people to fall into sin, to take that away so that he can make all things new. And so there are four areas that King Jesus will be removing and that, so that King Jesus can restore all things. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing. The first thing that King Jesus will remove is all false security. All false security. Look at verse 10 and 11 again. It says, In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. Now, and again, we look at it and we read it and we're like, that is a really bad thing. And yeah, in a sense, it's a really bad thing, but it's also a really good thing. Because here's what happened to the people of God. Instead of the people of God trusting God for their security, what did they put their trust in? Look at verse 10. They put their trust in their chariots and in their horses. In other words, they put their trust in the military might. Bad things might happen to us, but that's okay. We've got a strong army. Instead of the people trusting in God, they trusted in their cities with big walls and say, yes, even though the bad things might happen, there's no way that these conquering nations will enter into our strong cities because these cities will protect us. And what, is, what does this rising king do who's going to restore all things? He is telling the people of God, I'm coming and by me making all things new, all the things that you have put your hope in other than in me, I'm going to remove that temptation. And what is true for the people of Israel is also true for us today. Let, let, let's just be honest here. And I think this is the practical application of, of some of these prophecies of King Jesus coming back to make all things new. Like, like we, are, we have a tendency to put our trust in other things and that, that provides us security other than in God. Like we, we put our trust in our abilities to make money or our abilities to make good decisions. We put our trust in our 401k or IRA or our checking account or our savings account or, or in other people thinking this will provide us security. And what are we doing in a sense by saying that? We're trusting in these things that do not really provide security and who should we trust it? We should be trusting in God to provide us the ultimate security. And because King Jesus is such a good king, he doesn't allow us to continue in our false securities, but he graciously removes these false securities from us so that we can ultimately trust him. And that is what He promises to do. I'm going to come and all of these things that you're putting your hope in, that you think that's going to provide and satisfy and fulfill you and give you meaning in life, I'm going to remove all of that temptation because it doesn't really fulfill, it doesn't really provide, it doesn't give you security. It's actually false. 
And I wonder if some of that is happening already. If we have to summarize the last couple years, let's just be honest, the things that we thought were certain is not anymore. The things we thought is guaranteed is not anymore. We live in a time of great uncertainty and great volatility. And what is our king doing? He is removing these false sense of security so that we cannot be tempted and trust these false things, but that we would trust Him and Him alone. Here's the second thing that the Lord, that the rising king is going to remove if you're taking notes. The rising king will remove false counsel. He will remove false counsel. Look at verse 12. It says, I will remove sorceries from your hands, and you will, have ne- you will not have any more fortune tellers. Any, anybody struggling with fortune tellers? No, but let me put it in context here. Did the people of God listen to God's prophets or the false prophets? They didn't listen to God's prophets because God's prophets kind of gave it to them in a bad way. God's prophets told them, judgment is coming. And the false prophets came in and said, don't listen to that guy. We live in a time of great hope and great encouragement. And if bad times happen, it's only going to happen for a little bit, little bit because are we not Abraham's descendants? Are we not God's people? Is God not going to protect us and deliver us? Listen to these words of encouragement. Listen to these words of hope. And what these people fell into the trap, they were listening to the false prophets. They were listening to the words they want to hear. In a sense, God classifies them as fortune tellers, sorcerers, people who pretend they know the future, but they're really just giving you what you want to hear. The reason why sometimes we want to know about the future is because we want to know whether it's good or bad. But we're hoping it's good. So we go to a person and say, tell me about the future. And they look you in the eye and they know you want something good. So what are they going to give you? Something good. And again, if that is true for the people of God in the Old Testament, that's certainly true for us today. We have false teachers that tell us what we want to hear. Paul even told the apostle Timothy, say, In these last days, people want their ears to be tickled. They want words of hope, words of always encouragement. So that it can self-justify, so that it can appease their lifestyle and their behavior. Because we want God, the blessings of God and the blessings of the world all together, and we surround ourselves with people who are not really teaching God's Word. And if they're teaching God's Word, they're teaching the parts that we all want to hear and say yes and amen to. And yet King Jesus is coming, and He is going to remove all of these false teachers and all of these false teachings, and He's going to hold them to account. And think about it. It seems harsh, but that is a good thing because it will protect you from false teaching. The third thing is 
King Jesus, the rising king, is going to remove false worship. Look at, look at verse 13 to 14. We're almost done here. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will no longer worship the work of your hands. I will pull up a share of poles from among you and demolish your cities. Now, now the people of God bowed down to these carved images. They bowed down to the Asherah poles. And here's why they did that, okay? I know for all of us, we think, man, these people are just really dumb. Like, why would you do that? that that's just wrong. But here's really the fundamental issue. The reason why they did that is because they were determined to worship the way they thought God should be worshiped. False worship is when we're determined to worship God, not the way He tells us to worship Him, but the way we think He should be worshipped. So if you think of in the, in, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, God told them, how should you worship me? The very first command, you shall have no other God before you. In other words, God says, if you want to worship me, you must worship me exclusively. You can't worship me and the other gods. I must be worshipped alone. That's the very first criteria if you want to worship God. The second criteria is in the second command. You will not make for yourself an idol. In other words, you're not going to define me or turn me into something that I am not. You're not going to make something and say, this is the God that gave us the Ten Commandments. This is the God that delivered us. And what did they do? They made a golden calf and said, we are determined to define God and who He is, what He does, and what He looks like. And we think He looks like this golden calf that has delivered us from Egypt. And the third commandment, how does God say to worship me? You will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. In other words, you're not going to take his name and just use it willy-nilly. And there's no fear, no reverence, and no awe to his name. And how did the people of God worship God? The way they thought they should worship God. We can worship God and worship these idols. We can make carved images and say, this is who we think God looks like. And we're going to take his name, and we will not treat it with awe, fear, and reverence because, you know, God is just a loving God. He's just going to embrace us. And again, what is true for the people of God is true for us today. We might not make idols, but what do we do? We, in our own minds and our rebellious hearts, are determined to worship God the way we think God should be worshipped. Oh, I like worshiping God this way because this really makes me feel good. And it's not about how we think we should worship God, but it's how God revealed how we should worship Him. I think God is pretty clear on how we should worship Him. And He calls us to worship Him. And this is the culture that we, 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 we live in. We, we base our worship of God on what we think or what we feel or what makes us feel better instead of worshiping God as revealed through His Word. And then we end up worshiping a God we don't know because we don't know His Word. And yet when King Jesus comes back, all of these false worships will be removed because He will be fully known. And when He is fully known, He will be truly worshiped. Do you really, you, you, do you know what's the greatest hindrance of us fully worshiping God? It's not style. It's not lights. It's not environments. It's not music. It's not fully knowing God. True worship is fully knowing God 
and being transformed by the God that you know. And it is a response to the God that has revealed himself that's been fully known and made fully known to you. So our worship, even though it's to the best of our ability and it's a joyful noise and it's based on the little we know, our worship when King Jesus comes back is going to be far more superior, far more better. Why? Because he will be fully known. The last one is this. God, the rising king, will remove our enemies. He says, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. As the nations raged against the people of God, God promised to deliver his people and take vengeance. And so this is what the nation of Israel longed for. They longed for God to, to send them Messiah to deliver them from the nations that are oppressing them. In Jesus' time, they wanted Jesus to deliver them from the oppressed rule of Rome. But Jesus came to deliver them from a far greater enemy, from the enemy of sin that has ensnared them, from the enemy of Satan that has deceived them, and from the enemy of death that is all-consuming and never satisfied. And I do think that this promise is going to continue of Him delivering us from our ultimate enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Even though they've been defeated, we know that sin's presence is still here, still ensnaring people. Even though our enemy is chained up, he still walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. And even though we have victory in a sense over death, all of us are going to experience death one way or another, and all of us are still in fear of experiencing death. But there is going to be a time where sin will be no more, where Satan will be no more, and death will be no more. And this is what we're looking forward to, to the rising king who's going to remove all of these things. And by removing all these bad things, he is restoring all the good things. So as we, we're wrapping it up real quick, we're in a season of watching and waiting. The prophecies have been given to us. Some of them have been fulfilled in Jesus' second coming, and some of them are waiting to be fulfilled in His second coming. So what do we do? What do we do? I think what we do right now is start to remove the things that King Jesus is going to remove. Actively remove the things you're putting your hope in other than in God. Remove the false securities in your life. In your season of watching and waiting, remind yourself, these things don't provide. These things are not significant. They do not give me meaning. Only King Jesus does. Remove false counsel. Like, what are you surrounding yourself with? Look, the world is continually discipling you, continually feeding you truths. Are you continually hearing this false counsel thinking, ah, it's fine, it's fine, I'm just tolerating it? Eventually, that false counsel is going to infiltrate and lead you astray. Actively remove those things. Remove any false worship. Like, are you worshiping the way you think you should be worshiping God, or are you worshiping the way God has called you and revealed to you to worship Him? Is your worship of Him based on who He's revealed through His Word, or is your worship based on what you think God is like? Remove that false sense of worship. 
And the last thing is this, as we feel like we're constantly surrounded by enemies, let us trust our King to come, to vindicate, and to take all the wrongs in the world and make it right and destroy our enemies once and for all. And to that we can say, Lord, we live in a really bad place where it seems like awful people get away with everything. We're being persecuted and oppressed because we're trusting you. And this is wrong. And there's nothing we can do about this, but Lord, we're trusting you to come back and make all things new. And to that we can say, come Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises that you've given us, Lord. And as the apostle says, every promise that is found in, 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 in God's Word can be found as a yes in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for these promises. Thank you that they are a yes, not a maybe, but a yes in Jesus. Can you help us to be faithful and watching and waiting? Can you help us to remove false securities? Can you help us to remove false counsel from our lives and be in your word? Can you help us to remove false worships and worship you in spirit and in truth? Can you help us not to try to, to make all the wrongs in the world right and vindicate ourselves, but to trust you that you are coming and that you will vindicate. Help us, Lord, to look to you and trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.